Hello, mainly fans. 2022 is almost in the books, and I'm due for a few thank yous in the spirit of the season. Starting with all the wonderful, talented people who have been guests this year and indulge my curiosity. Also, a huge shout out is once again due to Brian Den Hartog for composing all the versions of the Mainly History theme you hear on this show every, every time you tune in. Not only the classic version, but also the special editions that we pull out for holidays. That is all Brian. Phenomenal. And finally, to our listeners. To those of you who have spread the fandom around the world and made this the best year yet for Mainly History. The state motto may be dear ago, but my motto to you right now is gratias TV. Thank you. Our final show, 2022, brings you a returning guest, the one and only Vaughn Joy, scholar and fan of all Christmas movies, here to discuss a recent addition to the Christmas cinema, starring Anna Kendrick, who is unquestionably one of Maine's most significant cultural exports of the 21st century. This episode is heavy on Christmas movie arcana, and proudly takes a lighthearted holiday film far more seriously than its own creators ever did. If that is not your idea of a good time, then this will not be one of your favorite episodes. Also, even though Vaughn and I were dissecting a movie safe for children, the language used in this episode was not. So, you have been warned. But for those of you who do stick around, I hope you think this bonus holiday episode slays. So let's do this. My guest today is Vaughn Joy, PhD candidate at University College London, co-host of Impressions of America podcast, and returning Mainly History guest, a Christmas fan favorite from last year's cinematic critique episode on main Christmas movies, however tenuously connected. <laughs> Vaughn. Welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back. Yeah, this is this is quite a uh, quite a show we have here. Uh, the <laughs> Anna Kendra Christmas uh, special uh, or the Anna Kendra Christmas spectacular, should we call it, I guess? Yeah, there's there's quite a spectacle here. So there, there is there is. Uh, we will be getting into some other highbrow Christmas themes. Uh, as of course, the show just can't <laughs> avoid highbrowness. But we should uh, we should begin our, uh, our our talk with just uh, highlighting the the beloved main connection of today's show, and that would be one of Maine's most beloved cultural exports the one and only actor and singer, Anna Kendrick. Vaughn, what is your favorite Anna Kendrick production? 
That is a good question. Oh, I don't know, actually. <laughs> what is Anna Kendrick in? Oh, Maybe uh, Pitch Perfect. She, yeah, she's in Pitch Perfect. She's yeah, in, Pitch wasn't Perfect's it? great. Yeah. She had a small role in Twilight, which my younger teenage True. self would really admire that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually really enjoy her in the film we're going to talk about today, the main film. Yeah, she does really well in it. Um, she does. So- she's very fun. She is. She is. I mean, the reviewer has even said that the cast was good and Kendrick in particular mm-hmm. really carries the film, even people who felt middling sentiments about it. Although none of the reviews that I encountered dealt with any of these serious uh, philosophical questions <laughs> raised by this film. This is not a movie. This is a film. Yes. Uh, and so which... Well, so the film that we are discussing today is Noel, a 2019 production that was released in 2019. Sorry, that's redundant there for the Disney Plus streaming service. It was written and directed by Mark Lawrence, whose best known film is is probably Miss Congeniality. He did a lot of work with Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant earlier in his career. Um, And then uh, he also wrote and directed Noel. So that's what we're discussing here. Uh, Briefly, we should just say about uh, Kendrick's main connections. She grew up in Portland. According to the website virtualglobetrotting.com, they actually had an aerial aerial shot of her childhood home, which seemed really creepy. Um, Yeah, don't like that. Yeah, I don't like that. Um, So I'm not going to say like what street she was on, but it appears (laughs) to be in the Rosemont neighborhood of Portland off the peninsula. I did not buy her autobiography to read because I I don't read really any celebrity autobiographies. And uh, (laughs) also I'm very lazy, Uh, but some uh, some Internet sleuthing led me to Bon Appetit magazine, which asked her about her favorite Portland restaurant. And uh, this was in 2018, and she she named Street and Company, which is on Wharf Street. And coincidentally or not, uh, this is one of my favorite Portland restaurants as well. My family and I refer to it as Fancy Fish. It is very high end. I do recommend it. Uh, not not like unattainably high end, but just like nice. Um, and when you're in the waiting area, you can get served drinks and appetizers, and it looks kind of like you're feels very rustic or like you're you're in a ship. Uh, so like that, uh, <laughs> she she attended Deering High School, and her family's uh, one of her her favorite main locations is lakes is a uh, Sebago Lake, where they go on day trips. She in solidarity, uh, she avoided the Old Port Starbucks because it was new and like harming local businesses when she was growing up. She was born in 1985, so she's close to to my age. I would just like to throw in, though, that I am not, uh, I do not run a universally anti-Starbucks show. I find that uh, some of these, some of these stores are full of really, I mean, that the workers there are great, go unions, but the Starbucks in the Hay Building, aka the Flatiron looking building on Congress Street in Portland, I wrote much of my dissertation there. They were super awesome. So I just want to give the the staff in the Hay Building, a, uh, a Starbucks, a, uh, a big shout out. So anyway, that's the Anna Kendrick main connection, which she periodically brings up and embraces. And because Maine 
maybe various main newspapers, they appear to be somewhat celebrity thirsty in the sense that like they're very eager to claim Anna Kendrick. And she's not trying to avoid Maine. Like she clearly has verbalized she would kind of like to come back, but she just wants to be in Hollywood. So anyway, this is not a completely strained association that we have here because Anna Kendrick herself is is very vocally pro-Maine and does does return back to her to her hometown uh, regularly. So there you have it, the uh, the main connection. Let's get to this uh, this film though, our launch pad for our wider discussions. But this is there's a lot to cover here. So so Vaughn, what is the basic plot summary of this cinematic delight? So uh, Noel Anna Kendrick is Santa's daughter, and she has an older brother Nick who is played by Bill Hader. And he is fantastic at, at every line in this film. And Nick is is supposed to be Santa this upcoming Christmas because the film, the Disney film, starts by saying that Santa died, which is yes. a wild thing. Yes. Um, so this so- means we see him. Uh, we see him like, you know, before before he dies and they yeah. imply he an ailing Santa was riding around in his sleigh in whatever his last Christmas was because they make no claim that Santa like took a Christmas off because he was ailing. Yeah. So this means an ailing, failing, dying Santa was schlepping around the world mere months before his demise, which was five months before Christmas. So Santa died in July, if we're doing the math. Well, further than that, because... When Noelle gets to Phoenix, okay, so plot summary, yes, uh, she convinces her brother <laughs> who is stressing out and really doesn't want to be Santa, he's not good at it, um, she convinces him to like take a mental health weekend and go on holiday for a weekend, and he does, goes to Phoenix, decides that he loves it there and doesn't want to come back, so Noelle has to go to Phoenix, uh, try to convince her brother to come back, meanwhile, uh, Billy Eichner, for some reason, is... Uh, also in this movie and he is being propped up as the new Santa and causing all sorts of havoc in the North Pole while Noel is trying to find Nick and ultimately at the end Nick and Noel come back so that Nick can convince everyone at the North Pole that Noel should be Santa because she's the one with the real Christmas spirit she has the the quote-unquote twinkle the twinkle the twinkle um yes she has all of the Santa gifts of being able to speak to any child regardless of language and just knowing inherently if someone is nice or naughty all of those kind of like santa magic moments noel has them and nick does not so there's a very minor strife over whether a woman can be santa and it happens for about 30 seconds and then the film's like we're progressive and feminist yes um it's good to know well they do so on that note i mean my early American history classes, we do have, we do engage in some debates about during like the revolutionary era, whether certain kinds of female exclusion is de facto or de jure, right? By law Mm -hmm. or just by custom. And they talk about that too. And so they make it clear that it turns out the Santa Salic law is in fact not a law, it is a custom. Mm-hmm. Sparing us 
the need for some sort of North Pole like constitutional convention <laughs> to rewrite the Santa Covenant to allow women to drive the sleigh. So anyway. Yeah. And which it's an interesting through line because we'll we'll talk about it, but Noel has so many tropes from other Christmas films. There's yes. so many kind of classic touchstones to other ones. Um, and they're done really well. And like you would think that they made them up if you didn't know those other Christmas films as thoroughly or something. But that whole the the Santa bylaws and everything, I mean, that's that's Disney to a T, isn't it? With the Santa Claus and the yes. subsequent films of that. And this, this is film- very um, I thought of that like as I was watching, like this is definitely borrowing things from the Santa Claus, mm-hmm. where part of the earlier story is mortal human gaining santa powers and the comedy comes from them adjusting to their newfound powers although arguably it also mixes in the childish idealism of will ferrell and elf where they embrace it right away you know and if anything it's like with great christmas power comes great responsibility yeah that's that's the real kind of push in this is is that we have to redefine Christmas for the the modern era which I mean has always been the kind of final monologue in almost every Christmas film of we swear this is relevant still um which also has a really kind of profound history of rewriting the holiday and depending on how big the film is like something like Miracle on 34th Street it can completely kind of redefine and rebrand Christmas for the whole era and for like just the public imagination and and idea of what Christmas is. Yes. But this film really pushes for it. I mean, we should just come right out of the gate and say, I mean, if ever there was a holiday that has just been evolving and being redefined Mm. from its inception, it's Christmas. So if anything, arguing for a way or reason that Christmas needs to change is part of the history of Christmas. Like there's arguably no more Christmas tradition than talking about a way in which the holiday should evolve. Even if you're like a kind of crotchety person who, or like, you know, a very nostalgic type about, well, I miss the way Christmas used to be. Christmas used to be a holiday that was having conversations about ways it needed to change or what changes were good or not. So like Christmas manages to be simultaneously constantly evolving and also constantly nostalgic and backwards looking. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of of putting that. Cause like in an example would be almost immediately after English people and Americans started putting up Christmas trees, uh, Americans and Brits started writing letters to each other and saying things like we had a tree up this year as is the custom. And it's like, no, it's not the custom. It's new. But (laughs) everything about Christmas, like the whole, the invention of Santa Claus in the mid 19th century, part of the myth of Santa was that it was a super long tradition, long held by the Dutch colonists. And much of that was overblown. But like everything, Christmas has to be old, even when it's new. And for, for a very recent example, Elf on the Shelf came out 
in what like 2004 and we're all acting like it's been a tradition for generations on generations yes i that's the strangest one to me because i was definitely not part of that tradition and and that was not part of my tradition in my childhood Um, but it's ubiquitous now it's everywhere and people really act like it's it, like this is the custom this is what we do that's how you celebrate christmas and it's that's a really bizarre one to me i don't understand why that's become so popular there's other profound questions raised by the film noel here sticking with gender here so we have the role of women in the santa legend uh and i'd like to tie in mrs claus as well right mm-hmm. and in this film that is played by julie haggerty who is best known for her role as in What About Bob? She was Dr. Leo Marvin's wife. I can't. Uh, she plays Faye Marvin in What About Bob? I think that's her most iconic role. Anyway, she is Mrs. Claus. And it's she clearly has some sort of a role. She's like the Dowager Queen mm. of some kind. Because, to be clear... In this movie, early early in the movie, Anna Kendrick, as the daughter of Santa, is called Princess. She has a servant, played by Shirley MacLaine, an elf named mm-hmm. Polly. So that means, by the virtue of this, Santa is a form of hereditary monarch. <laughs> and the Kringles are a dynasty. They're a royal family. Uh, Anna Kendrick is a princess, with the respect thereof. Therefore... Her mom is like the Dowager Queen of Christmas, who clearly is supposed to play some kind of mentoring role in the perpetuation of the Kringle dynasty, right? Of uh, of keeping of like running the shop and supervising the family. She is doing a lot of the mental and emotional and even practical support work, and yet much like in an actual royal family, especially in like early modern Europe, I'm thinking about, everybody expects and requires the person of Santa, the king's body, if you will, right? Uh, Everybody expects the king to still perform certain royal Santa-ly duties. And in fact, they can only be done by Santa. It's almost like a priesthood. It's like the body of Santa can is the only one who can go down the chimney or the, and wear the suit and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so even though the Dowager Queen knows how to do a lot of these things, her body cannot physically do it. And And that really passes to her daughter as well, because she's not the Mrs. Claus, Mrs. Kringle figure. She really isn't doing any of the kind of emotional and mental support for her son they put all of that onto noelle right and even from a young age um in the very first scene where she's having this kind of flashback to when she was a child and santa's there her dad is there um he tells her that her role for life is to support her brother and keep everyone jolly i really want to know how how many times they said jolly in this film true by the way it's a well, lot. Well, because they also use it as a substitute for happy. Yeah. Because there's a whole Kringle speak that they use. And and as it's the only adjective they use for anything. Like so she calls someone's pants jolly. And it's 
True. It's a lot. But anyway, back to back yeah. to the point. Yeah, of um, course. A lot of the emotional and mental labor is put onto Noel. Yes. And naturally no one acknowledges that at all. But least of all her mother, who does all of that or did all of that for her husband for however long. She doesn't recognize in her own daughter that um they're putting a hell of a lot of pressure on her <laughs> to keep yes. keep Christmas going. Um, and she also doesn't give her any guidance there. She just expects her to know how to train her brother to be Santa Claus, which is also a strange dynamic because she was married to Santa Claus and there's absolutely no pressure in this film at all for romance for no. anyone, which um, is great. That's is. progressive. But it yes. puts a weird strain on Noel to serve this Mrs. Claus role. Is that like in perpetuity or is that until he gets a wife? Like, it's it's very ill-defined. She's like a Harriet Lane to President James Buchanan, our bachelor president, mm. who needed a first lady, but was unmarried, whether because he was gay or just because he just was a confirmed bachelor in a non-homosexually inclined way is unclear. In any case, his niece, Harriet Lane, filled the role because it was expected that there would be a female companion for the president to do this job. So Noel is a Harriet Lane type figure for this. And, you know, Nick is also much like James Buchanan, unfit for his job uh, <laughs> and not particularly good at it. Although at least in this case, not observably, you know, racist or abetting uh, Southern treason or anything. So good on you, Bill Hader's Nick Kringle. <laughs> there were a couple points uh, in this movie where, I wasn't sure if one of the sort of the mortal man character that we'll get to, who I liked what they did with this role uh, because they turned around the, the often the sort of nice de-sexed either romantic partner or male friend for like the Miracle on 34th Street type movies. And they made him less nice and less kind of omnipotent. So that was good. But there were certain points when I thought, oh, maybe Anna Kendrick and this dude are actually going to, you know, get together. Mm -hmm. And there was there was one point where she has never she's never seen or she doesn't know what sunblock is because she lives on the North Pole, which seems dumb because uh, if you go to the polar <laughs> areas, there's a ton of sun shining everywhere. And in fact, the Inuit. Uh, they have these snow goggles to prevent snow blindness. So really on the North Pole, they should know about sunburn <laughs> and sunblock and everything. Anyway, uh, so he's smearing sunblock on her face and it looks like they might have a moment, but then they don't. This ends up being a completely G-rated uh, friendship between them. And unlike Will Ferrell's elf, who eventually has some form of sexual awakening, Anna Kendrick appears to not, which I thought was an interesting choice. There was no sexual tension. <laughs> and this Christmas movie had a complete absence of sexual tension. What gives? <laughs> How dare you, Disney? <laughs> How dare you, Disney? We require that well, zone of, of sexual chemistry in a children's <laughs> Christmas film. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting critique because that's what Santa Claus the Santa Claus 2 is about. It's about finding him a wife. And it's right. written in the law that he cannot be Santa unless he has a Mrs. Claus by his side. Yes. And he like traps a woman into having to move to the North Pole. And 
and lose her like hard-earned principal's position in a high school it is kind of a mark of where we're at now in 2022 that 20 years ago the disney christmas standard was it's written in law that he needs a wife i mean vaughn let's be real if your choice was between being the principal of a high school (laughs) in the united states of america or moving to the north pole and being the sexual companion and help meet of St. Nicholas. I know for me, that is absolutely no contest. Uh, okay. There are a lot of things I Fair. would choose above principle of high school <laughs> in the in the United States. Uh, yeah, I, but think, they... I think our film review, by the way, this is probably just going to get an explicit rating. So it's okay. There's just no way around this. <laughs> um, this is going I... in the bonus episode files or something. I don't, I don't know what to do. That's fair. Yeah. I I do think that I mean that film she in in the Santa Claus 2 in defense she really loves her job and she has a whole monologue about how she's worked very hard to get to this position and this is what she's always wanted to do with her life and then Tim Allen's like you have 2 minutes to decide whether you want to marry me and give up your entire life and then wow. also have a strange kind of body transformation into Mrs. Claus like he did to be Santa Claus. There's really no room for her to make these decisions for herself because oh, they they're really on a time like limit. A, they really pulled a Kate and Leopold with that one. Yeah, he kidnapped her. Yeah. He kidnapped that woman and she never went back to her regular life. And that was the Disney standard then. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just Disney. Again, Kate and Leopold is that entire yeah, yeah. supposedly storybook romance where Meg Ryan she ends up deciding to move back in time with a 19th century prince and risk, you know, dying of a terrible disease and all kinds of like sexism and awfulness and abandoning everyone she ever knows to go into some sort of weird time-space continuum wrinkle. And everybody just sort of claps for her and is like, goodbye, Uh, you're going to die before I was ever actually born. And uh, the end. Like, Hmm. you know... I, I was somewhat disturbed by the implications in Kate and Leopold. That's also the whole premise of Outlander. Uh, which I have not oh. seen. I know it is. Oh, well, that's popular. the premise of Outlander. And then um, Katrina Bell uh, also goes forward into time again to see her daughter. And then she and her daughter come back in time together. That's a spoiler, but from like six years ago. Okay. So I don't know if that needs a spoiler. But and it's it's all for this like amazing romance but if you really think about it for more than a second it's like this is not actually ideal for anyone involved can we stay on the mrs claus theme for a moment here because i think there's there's a this is a rich vein to be uh dug mind whatever uh i i think in in certain ways having julie haggerty as the only mrs claus in this film they don't give her a first name, which is really unfortunate. Um, although certain films do not. Uh, but it's the the stock character for this role usually is supposed to look like a sort of grandmotherly figure, sort of like a, a female Keebler elf, you know, mm-hmm. but just bigger. Uh, and so the fact that they chose Julie Haggerty, who her hair is longer, she looks a bit younger. She's not like... She's not, you know, sort of a rotund she Santa companion or something, right? 
Uh, I thought that was interesting. And I think that, you know, maybe they should just continue breaking down these various barriers of Mrs. Clausitude, like in terms of who can play the role. And it made me realize I'm a little surprised, going to be honest, that Tyler Perry has not made a Christmas movie in the Medea cinematic universe in which Medea becomes uh, Mrs. Claus. Mm. Like, seriously, because like Tyler Perry has made a ton of movies and they're all just like huge moneymakers. How is it that Medea has not been Mrs. Claus yet? That's a great point. Yeah. Tyler Perry, get on that. Come on. (laughs) Also, Medea as Mrs. Claus, you know, would have a very active role in the doings of of North Pole affairs. Mm, that's interesting. And that brings up um, the only other kind of modern Mrs. Claus that we have, which is Goldie Hawn in the Christmas Chronicles franchise, which is which a, a Netflix. also never seen, but please go on. Okay, so they really kind of revolutionize Santa and Mrs. Claus in that because they're played by Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. And they make them very sexy. Like they're very, very attractive (laughs) and like wearing red leather and like sunglasses and like gorgeous, like she's in this gorgeous gown. And that is, that was very exciting for me the first time I saw it because in the Christmas Chronicles, the first one, it's very Kurt Russell centric. And then in the last kind of scene or something, when he goes back to the North Pole, they reveal that Goldie Hawn is his Mrs. Claus. And they've been a couple for many decades in real life. Um, So it's nice to see them together on screen and as Mr. and Mrs. Claus. But the whole dynamic is not like the old Coca-Cola Santa and Mrs. Claus, like you were describing. It's like a slightly younger way hotter very active mr and mrs claus and then in the sequel they get into that even more um so like in the christmas chronicles santa fucks with a q absolutely okay absolutely okay there's a whole there's a whole like saxophone solo like it's hot it's really wow okay highly recommend (laughs) um they're fun films also they're just they're just a fun time but okay to see a Santa that fucks, definitely sexy, sexy Kurt Russell Santa Claus and okay. Goldie Hawn Mrs. Claus. Now, my my heart still belongs to the 1996 depiction of Mrs. Claus. And uh, the, the movie is called Mrs. Santa Claus. Uh, and it's played by, played by Angela Lansbury in a hmm. made-for-TV musical about... Mrs. Claus going down to New York City in 1910. It is uh, amazing. It is available on, I believe, Roku's free movies. Uh, I saw it long ago, and I, I refreshed, as a refresher, I looked up a few plot points to remind myself of some things. What I'd forgotten, Jerry Herman can composed the music. He is known for Mame and Hello, Dolly, and La Cage of Fall. And then he also did the the original music for this. This is Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Santa Claus. They do not, if they give her a name besides Mrs. Santa Claus, I do not recall it. And it was not (laughs) in the refresher. But she's sad about being left alone on Christmas Eve every year. And so she ends up 
uh, feeling neglected and she takes the sleigh out and there's some like malfunction. And so she crash lands in New York City and she uh, moves in with some Jewish immigrants who don't celebrate Christmas and teach her to broaden her horizons. She also makes a bunch of friends, including workers at a toy factory who she helps lead in labor disputes with the corrupt owner. Uh, and she also gets involved with the woman's suffrage movement. I mean, how is this not a winner on all fronts? And it's I, Angela Lansbury in a musical. I have never heard of this, but this sounds like my favorite film of all time. Yes, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. I think, I don't remember, uh, there's only one song in there I remember being like particularly memorable. But that said... Uh, it doesn't matter. Just the entire premise right there, you know, makes it better yeah. than like half of all Christmas movies ever made. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to look so, that up this evening. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's it's truly, I think it's got to be in the top five. No, top three movies in terms of dealing with the important under-examined issues of Mrs. Claus and her her roles. Mm. Uh, besides all the, all the rest of things. So similar with these gender dynamics, I'd like to also just return to these issues of sex and gender and the transitive properties of santification in this film, which they they don't fully clarify. So I, I have my my notes here. One of my questions was like, is is this maybe an Encanto type situation where santitude is transmitted via vibes and spirit? Or is the santification or twinkle, uh, does it have a biological component, right? So mm. Noelle's dad, Santa, clearly boned her mom, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. Her dad was Santa, hence clearly Santa. Sorry, <laughs> I have these notes here that I wrote after I'd taken an edible. And <laughs> it's a little, and so the note just reads, hence clearly Santa nodded with the lady. <laughs> Um, but by extended logic, this is a dynasty, the House of Kringle, right? Ergo, we have one of several scenarios in this case. One is primogeniture that is patrilineal, in which the male uh, is the line bearer and the transmitter of santification, right? And so in this case, Nick Kringle, Big Bill Hader, was clearly unfit, right? Um, and Noel stepped in on a temporary basis just this one time. And because the mail carrier is clearly deficient and possibly some sort of hippie, you know, person. So like obviously mm -hmm. unfit. But the question is, does Noel need to find and claim a mate in order to bear the next generation of Santas? And if so, does Santa still follow the male line like of her? Or if not... If Noel remains celibate, does Nick need to become more fully adult and does he need to spread his seed so that the line can continue? Also, so is is Noel like a temporary caretaker in a tradition in a male role, right? Or has this like fully just broken any sort of gender things? Is it not like the English royal family where it's just primogeniture full stop without without yeah. distinction? So they're super vague on this, right? They are. And I like the implication that there's an inheritance 
to it because one of the critiques is like, oh, Santa's like 4,000 years old or whatever. Not 4,000, 400 years old. They say, by the way, he's been around for 2,000 years and there's been 23 Santas. Yes. Yeah. So okay. This is the thing that I wanted to ask or talk about. Did the Santa, like their father, know that he was dying? So like had kids now? That's so true. So that he because... could raise the next Santa? Because that's kind of fucked. And, and right? 2,000 divided by 20. Three. Hang on. Calculator. Each Santa lives approximately 87 years old. And if we go with Anna Kendrick being as old as she actually is in real life in that movie, she was about 35. So, all right. Santa sired her when he was approximately 50. Okay. All right. That makes more sense because yes. he's, he, I mean, he is Santa, so he has the whole look and everything, but he looks He's got quite the old he does. in the beginning. <laughs> Does yeah, well, he was already. I mean, he was already like basically sixty years old when yeah. we see because she's well, she's not ten yet, so he's in his hot, he's in his mid to late fifties. Um, yeah. and Santa, if we go by some of the other Christmas films, like of course Tim Allen's The Santa Claus, we know that being Santa physically ages you, uh, mm -hmm. early on. Although it is unclear. If it physically ages you in the way that like Abraham Lincoln was physically aged by four years of civil war, where he he was just worn down, or if it just physically ages you, but not in a way that saps your vitality. Yeah, just to look more iconic. Yes, yes. Yeah. So yeah, these are these are deep issues. Um, deep issues. <laughs> but then, so here's the other thing is this if Nick is clearly without twinkle and is able to spread the line. Anyway, does this mean that the santification line is purely biological since Nick is totally twinkle free? Or does this mean that santification is a recessive trait and not fully present throughout Kringledom in every branch of the family? Well, so you don't necessarily, so the twinkle and the Santa are different things. Like, because they were just willing to make the cousin, Gabe, who's played by Billy Eichner, into Santa on True. custom of it of him being the, the male heir. And they weren't concerned about the twinkle at all. So is it like a requirement to have the twinkle or is it a bonus? I think it seems like it's an implied requirement in the same yeah. way that like if the monarch is genuinely mentally unfit for office then, you know, some sort of measures are taken, like Madness of King George style, where there's like a regent or something. Right. right? So um, I guess, yes, the santification, I was me also referring to the twinkle, like the, the thing. Right. You know. Because um, you also wouldn't be able to carry out the duties of like checking the naughty and nice list and making sure that people have a good heart and um knowing what they want like bill Hader can't tap into that at all no but the but everyone in the north pole is like no he's santa because he's the heir so there's there's this disconnect in their own customs and and law saying that it should be an heir but it should really be the one who has the twinkle specifically yes. there's the, there's a related question there and this this does actually have an echo of like the three kings type situation right so mm -hmm. 
if this is a situation where the most fit twinkle possessor in each generation takes precedence sorry if this is like a an encanto situation where there's just a sort of ineffable magic floating around if noel dies without issue and nick remains a solo loser then the santa quality is transferred to some random person out there kind of like the dalai lama Mm. Does this mean that elves have to seek out the next Santa from among the people? So sort of like the three kings in the Bible story, they are following the star, right? Which Mm. is sort of indicating to them where the Christ child is going to be born. And they're looking for it. So do the elves have to go on like a search to find the next Santa? So that's, that's also how it works in the Santa Claus um because you you see elves like in the first half hour however long it takes for tim allen to kill santa um you see elves like in the background watching him so they know that it's going to be tim allen Mm. they're just waiting for him to kill their boss so that's kind of like really it's like the elder wand in harry potter right where Mm. when, when you defeat the bearer of the wand the wand chooses you so really being santa in the santa claus by killing santa it's like a total elder wand situation yeah it's it's like a i shot the sheriff kind of thing yeah um true which actually originally for that film tim allen wanted to shoot santa and like the original plan was that tim allen would be standing his ground and shoot santa for being on his property but that is such a tim allen idea i know know. disney felt it was too violent to like show him murdering santa so they just had him like (laughs) fall off the roof but still die it's a very disney thing to start a film with santa dying apparently that's what i'm learning here yeah but like yeah having him shoot him is a little too and also they make him a, a much more i mean tim the tool man taylor would never shoot santa he mm-hmm. would like rig an elaborate like booby trap or accidentally kill Santa, like electrocute Santa while helping him like recharge his battery or something. Yeah. Um. But like the Scott Calvin, the name, the only reason I remember the name is I accidentally like clicked on one of the last Santa Claus movies, the Santa Clauses. And mm-hmm. I forgot about Scott Calvin's actual name. So I was just like, who the fuck is Scott Calvin? Why am I supposed to care? <laughs> like, they don't make it clear unless you've seen the first movie. So I was like, why are we just supposed to accept the fact that Santa's name is Scott Calvin? <laughs> like, <laughs> that just seems real fucked to me. But anyway, then I sort of remembered, oh, right. If we accept that we live in the Tim Allen cinematic <laughs> Santa Claus universe. Oh, my God. But anyway, like they establish (laughs) him as like this clear, just sort of like dorky suburbanite guy who would never have a gun. He's not cool enough. I mean, he totally would have like, you know, a home security system to warn him if like minorities showed up in his yard. Like, but he would he would never like shoot anybody himself. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's he's that classic 90s. Like, I have stock portfolios. Yes. Yes. Oh, he's that guy who has the annoying habit of like talking on his large portable phone. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. And interrupting family gatherings. And everybody's like, Scott, come on, your daughter has a play. And he's like, I have to talk about stocks on my phone. And at the end of the movie, (laughs) he learns about boundaries and family and he throws his phone away. Yes, 
that's exactly what the Santa Claus is. You just summed up the Santa Claus. Thank you. Yes, it really is. Yeah, because then he lets his kid come along with him instead of being a negligent father. Yeah, exactly. Who cares too much about business. Although, weirdly enough, he then like becomes his job and he lives it all year round and is like, yeah. instead of doing my lame job and ignoring you to do it, I am going to like fully get consumed by my cool job and let you live with me for much of the year, which, yeah, that's mixed messaging. It is indeed. Yeah. I feel that we're really just dealing with a lot of deep, deep issues. <laughs> we really are. In this. Uh, I, well, yeah. in in that vein, I'm going to segue this. I can do this. Uh, in that vein, in the Santa Claus, Scott Calvin's whole thing in his previous life is that he's like an executive in a in a toy company and he's nixing toy lines and everything because they're not profitable even though kids love them stuff like that and then he becomes santa and learns like oh kids do love toys and they're meaningful to them beyond my bottom line whatever right and in this one the like applying business pr principles to the North Pole is like the ultimate evil kind of act in this. There isn't really a villain at all in this film. No. But Which is also the... very modern Disney. Like yes. where increasingly, uh, like in Encanto, the villain is just the house. There's something wrong with it. And then they all have to like fix it. And yeah. I've, I've read and I somewhat sympathize in some ways there's something nice slash realistic about there not being a pure villain. But on the mm -hmm. other hand, well done cinematic villains are a treasure. Um, yes. And so I think that that is an aspect of cinematic heritage that I would hate to see go, especially in children's movies when there's a good villain. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I, But please I, continue that there's Amazon is the villain, like the Amazon. Amazon. Amazon is the villain. Because Gabe is... is a well-meaning technocrat. Cousin Gabe, played by Billy Eichner, is really just a well-meaning technocrat. And it's not that he's evil. It's just that he shouldn't be allowed to be fully in charge because that mm -hmm. would ruin everything. Much like Amazon. Yeah. And they even mention Amazon in the film yes. and say that he's trying to modernize it, trying to deliver packages by uh, presents by drone to children or by using Amazon Prime. And everyone's yes. just like, how dare he? Like the magic comes from the Santa sleigh that children don't see anyway. And it, there's there's a real push by Gabe for automation in the North Pole and efficiency and putting all children into an algorithm to see if they're naughty or nice. Um, math is evil. Uh, that's math, just a fact. Math is evil. Yes. But it really comes down to like the algorithms. So this yeah. film, weirdly, has a very specific and poignant argument to be made about the algorithm kind of society that we're living in now while it's on Disney Plus, which is hilarious. <laughs> but yes. like it's that whole aspect of the film is really fascinating. It is. And it bears mentioning that part of the early innovation of Santa in 19th century America, which really produced Santa Claus in his recognizable form, uh, as Stephen Nissenbaum has argued rather insightfully mm -hmm. in his book, The Battle for Christmas, and which he, uh, Nissenbaum was himself our very first Christmas guest. 
And uh, gotta say, I'm just a huge, huge fanboy of all things Nissenbaum and his work. So people should go back and listen to that one. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, but Nissenbaum has argued that one of the things that Santa does is you look. The workshop is very old school. There's no robotics or technology, and so one of the things that Santa does is he enables Americans to hide and obscure industrialization and capitalism from the commercialization of this holiday because Santa allows you to still have gifts and well stuff without having production and business and modernization, which is all very crass and, you know, problematic. And so Santa has, was a, a way to get around all this and to conceal or or obscure the problematic aspects of modernity that i uh, agree with and it's it's really interesting with this film because they walk a weird line and this like being uncomfortable with automation is another throwback to another earlier christmas film and a disney one um babes in toyland 1961 Mm. where the the toy maker's assistant has built this machine that will build any toy you want um, in massive quantities and severely cut down the time it takes to prepare prepare for Christmas. And the toy maker in that like blows up the machine <laughs> because he says that automation is like the death of Christmas. Mm. And then there's a very weird segment of the children of toyland well the children in toyland making all of the toys on an assembly line and they sing several songs about being on an assembly line and how much they love working and the the toy makers saying you're such industrious children um you don't even want a break all of this stuff it's a really bizarre thing and this film kind of echoes back to that of we cannot allow automation and amazon and these big businesses into Christmas. But then at the same time, the running joke throughout the film is that everybody wants an iPad for Christmas. Right. And there's no real sense that they can build iPads in the North Pole as we see it. There, well, we it never just... see them making toys. That is true. And the it also, one of the implied, but not fully explained aspects of the Santa twinkle seems to be the ability to make a child's Christmas wish come true mm -hmm. because remember Noel uh, towards the end, clearly this is just a, a, a discussion full of spoilers people, but she's, <laughs> she's visiting the uh, deaf child and her mom in a homeless shelter and the child asks for her mom to get a job. And Noelle, in her voiceover, says she was able to get her the mom a job, like at, I think, as an interpreter or something like that. Well, she gives her a job listing. For... Oh, okay. Yeah. But still, she was still able to acquire that in her, yes. like, magic Santa speed time, right? So, point being... I see what you're saying there. So maybe maybe that was more doable. But it just feels like I think that like Santa really is able to in this, like 
by the transitive property of their superpower just is Christmas Mm -hmm. and whatever is required for Christmas, the will of Christmas to be done in this universe, Santa is able to make it happen. And they make it clear where she has this speech that Christmas doesn't solve all of our problems and the world is still complicated and dark. Christmas doesn't fix everything, but it gives us hope. And so Christmas, like the Christmas superpower that Santa has is to deal in like tangible hope giving goodness, Mm -hmm. if that is what is asked. So like if somebody just asks Santa, fix all my problems and make my life better, they can't do that. But if somebody says something like, you know, there's the, the old like Santa is totally used to this clearly in this universe of like, you know, I want to spend Christmas with both of my parents or something like that. You know, Santa seeming seemingly is is well versed in making that happen. That's definitely part of like the Christmas magic element. And also another reference to Miracle, Miracle on 34th Street. Yes. Um, with like there are several references to it in this film where Noel is is signing to the deaf child in the shelter and she's like I didn't know I could do that and then she's speaking other languages with other children and it just comes as part of this gift to her which is an immediate just direct throwback to Miracle where the Chris Kringle character um, speaks Polish to a little girl who has just immigrated Um, but also this like weirdly tangible intangible hope thing that santa can just provide but within limits uh noel gives the the mother a job listing so that she can go forward and apply and in the original miracle on 34th street chris kringle or leads susan and doris and your man to a house that susan wants that she she saw this house in a listing in a magazine and she said I want a family and I want a real house where we can be a family so he leads them to this house by the end of the film but he doesn't buy it for them he doesn't provide the house for them he just gives them the awareness that this is what she wants and you need to kind of pull this over the finish line and they know it's him because his hat and cane are there and that's the Christmas magic and they're like maybe he was real but that's that's part of that whole kind of Christmas mythology or sorry, Santa Claus mythology that Santa can do anything, but also has some limitations. It's the belief well, that, that Santa will provide to an extent. And it's providing for the child. Like, so yes. he's not as far as, you know, in these cases, he's not actually giving the gift directly to the parent. It's only mm-hmm. because the child being very sensitive and kind wants something for their parent or caregiver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's true. And that also just goes to, I mean, there is the reciprocal obligations of the sort of the Christmas covenant where the child still has to be nice and not naughty. And even though this is an endlessly vague term, they do imply that, yeah, there are naughty kids who just do bad stuff. That's bad enough that Santa really does skip them. And so Santa is not a complete pushover. He's a benevolent deity of of sorts, but he is nevertheless one that does make judgments mm-hmm. or at least observations. Something that's never really addressed in Santa Claus mythologies is um, 
the cutoff age. Like, it's always, mm. like, for children. He's delivering to children. But, but this film gets real vague with that because she delivers quite a few presents to adults as well. And, like, in Miracle, yeah. he also delivers presents to some adults. And, like, in the Santa Claus franchise, he delivers some to adults. So, what? like, is there a cutoff age for Santa? Why do we always say children? Is he right. giving gifts to everyone? And if so... Why do people still think he doesn't exist if they're getting gifts under their tree every year that they didn't themselves purchase? That that's that's I think like it depends a, on the movie because in some movies yeah. people do accept the existence of Santa. And so, which we'll get to in this one, the Jewish family, the father is completely unfazed by the arrival of Santa. And so this is a universe in which some people don't believe, but some do and accept it as a reality of matter of fact. And I think arguably, no, the movie Noel doesn't overuse for its humor adults just not believing that she has Santa magic. Like, mm-hmm. there's some of that, but like, it's not the same level as like Miracle on 34th Street, where the whole yeah. drama is about believing, right? Or the Santa Claus or, you know, other movies like that or or Elf. Yeah. Mentioning the Jewish household makes me bring up, first of all, the the theology of Christmas in this film. And it occurred to me, first of all, that this movie is possibly the ultimate ideal of what a secular, non-materialist speech on behalf of non-theistic Christmas is. Mm-hmm. And if you are going to argue that you know Christmas is both a theistic and a non-theistic holiday, right? And it always has been, right? Certainly it's been a Christian and a non-Christian holiday for you know its entire existence. It's always contained multitudes. Mm-hmm. But you could argue that secular Christmas is the true high holy day of secular humanism as expressed. And what I mean by that is in the one of the climactic scenes, Noel is giving a speech about what Christmas means to her. And the way she sums it up, and I'm paraphrasing, she sounds a little better, but basically is Christmas is the time of year when everybody tries to be their best selves. And not in a sort of like ableist way of do push-ups or if you don't do this thing right, then you fail and you're bad. But just rather like try your best to be good to everybody around you as best you can and assume the best of everyone and be your most generous giving forgiving self. And then it's an awesome time of year, she says, because everybody's doing it. And so you are doing your best to be good to everybody And everybody else is doing their best to be good to you. And that is why Christmas is so joyful and wonderful. Because wouldn't it, isn't it just great that we're all out there being our best human and look at what the world can be if we let each other be this good, you know, and it's pretty sweet. And so that's, you know, so when people are like, oh, well, what is the, what is the secular humanist version of of morality or whatever? That secular Christmas, Mm -hmm. right? And in in this rendition, 
you know, the materialism is not really required because the gifts, the gifts are just expressions of generosity and, mm-hmm. and vehicles for it. But the the possessions are beside the point. I really love Christmas for that reason. Like I wasn't raised with religion. I have never been a religious person. I've tried to, and I'm just not, but I love Christmas. I study Christmas. I spend a lot of my time with Christmas. And the thing that I love most about it is that people genuinely do try harder to be nicer because there's a societal pressure to be nicer around Christmas. And I, I, like that's a market marked thing like in our media in our um charity giving goes up in the the december period like people yeah. are nicer and that's tracked through history so i'm i'm with you i i think yeah. it's it's definitely the the inherent like that's what we mean by a christmas spirit yeah and i agree with you there that is that's something that i really appreciate about this and so when the people when you encounter the the christians who you know say like oh well what really is left when you take the christ out of christmas well this and Mm -hmm. i think it's it's still pretty good and i'm not saying like the christian christmas is i like that story too i was i was raised on it and i'm i don't know now i don't consider myself a trinitarian christian anymore I, I sort of read the book, if you will, and I, I, <laughs> I found it unconvincing. I find the Christmas story to be, I think, the most compelling and uh, resonant and rich of of the, the the theistic Christian tradition I was raised on. But uh, this movie literally does. It takes the Christ out of Christmas because they even have people saying, oh, my garland instead of, oh, my God. So they're living in this world in which there is no God. Like they make it linguistically clear in this movie that there is no God and yet they still have Christmas. And I know some Christians are likely pulling their hair out over this because the name is still in it. And this movie just sort of went with it anyway, but that is what we're left with. Right. So, but when you say like, yeah, so what happens when you take the Christ out of Christmas, this secular Christmas is its own sort of rich, rich thing, which they even emphasize, you know, they say, Oh, uh, when Noel is doing her voiceover towards the end uh, and she's going to somewhere that's clearly like East Asia where she says, and I'm going to some places that are newer and, you know, haven't always celebrated Christmas or, you know, something like that. And so there is that that angle here uh, gesturing to the detachment of the essence of the holiday from Christianity uh, is is obliquely at least addressed in this film. Which brings me, if this is a universal holiday, this movie has possibly perplexing or troubling implications mm-hmm. for Jews. So to to set the table, so what there's a scene, a brief scene where uh, Noel as Santa is stomping around uh, and she's still like figuring out her job. And she goes down a chimney into a house where the family is awake and they're eating Chinese food. And the dad looks at her and says, we're Jewish. And she just sort of blinks and looks at him and then leaves and goes back up to the chimney. So one, the Jews are aware that Santa is real Mm. and they just don't participate. But two, even though Christmas in this movie is unmoored from theology, the Jews are still not participating 
And so there are several possibilities here. So if Christmas is a non-theistic universalist holiday, the Jewish family's abstention from the gifts of Santa could mean one of several things. One is Jews have their own special holiday that is existing near Christmas and is not hostile to it, but it is quasi-identified like Christmas. Oh, wow. Well, so now I'm reading my own notes that I wrote. And so I have Jews have a special holiday that is existing near and not hostile, but also quasi-identified as like Christmas, but not totally and somehow Jewish and special, therefore needs to not have Santa put his fat skid marks on their special <laughs> faith with globalization and capitalism. Fair, plus Christian pogroms and other such unpleasantries. <laughs> but <laughs> list two, as I call it. So there is a darker possibility or implication though of noel's encounter with this chinese food eating uh, stereotypical uh jewish family and that is like there are some there's a real like der stürmer-esque uh possibility unintended i think to be clear we don't think that this movie was intended this way but mm -hmm. the movie presents christmas as this unobjectionable faith-free owed to human goodness since it's basically just be your best self and love everyone day and yet the jewish family is volunteering that it is not partaking fully in this universal feast of love and the human spirit alone among the earth's people depicted in this film therefore noel marks jews as a people apart defined principally by their abstention from this wonderful, magical peak of human joy. Isn't that something that Goebbels would try and put in a movie? Just asking questions. That was my <sighs> note from last night. Mm. Woof. <laughs> Woof. I mean, I, as you say, like it's, it is, it is played as a throwaway joke. And like, I, I really don't think that anyone meant anything intentional by no. it. Anna Kendrick, but we love you. This was not your, Yes, we we do love you and we know you didn't write it. But but those those kinds of throwaway jokes are very important to kind of the construction of cultural ideas. Did old Santas back in the day have official mistresses like the kings of old? Was there an official position <laughs> like an ancien regime France? Or are we to go with the more asexual assumptions of the film? Right? I like I I get I get that it's like a Disney film and they don't want to, we're like, we're empowering women, so we're not making them get married or anything. But when the whole system is an inheritance and a dynasty, where are they planning to go with this? Because she is 35 and he doesn't have the gene. So like, what's the plan here? Well, so she like, needs to just fly down. Uh, she needs to fly down and claim her santily rights with mm. this jaded male friend of hers yes. who she had the sunscreen moment with but mostly bonded through his child which is very miracle on 34th street mm -hmm. um so the like i think that's what it is uh noel needs to go and claim her her rights yeah uh that's, and, the second one should be about that 
Yes. Which is which is also what the second Santa Claus was about. It should be. There needs to be a sequel, like a prima nocta or something. If she just even if <laughs> maybe, oh, so maybe the guy, maybe it's going to be like Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley at the end of the third installation of the Pirates mm. of the Caribbean uh trilogy. Uh, and I know there's a fourth and a fifth, but let's stick with the trilogy, right? Where Will Turner becomes Davy Jones, right? And mm-hmm. he has to go and do his job. And then he returns once every 10 years to fuck Kira Knightley. Right. So maybe, maybe Noel will do something like that with this private detective jaded friend of hers, where she mostly lives on the North Pole, but she like occasionally flies down to phoenix which like of all the tropical paradise places really phoenix uh anyway uh she just goes down to phoenix to to have some santa relations with this man yeah um but there are other i had other really profound implications coming from this movie i had another thought regarding the cinematic universe implications of this film so Frosty the Snowman is part of the acknowledged reality in the cinematic universe. And so if this means that characters from Christmas movies are real, what about Ebenezer Scrooge? Right? Mm. He is, a, this is now part of my late night notes, but it's <laughs> he is a human and not snow, but he's basically Christmas canon and not a copyright infringement in the way a Mickey Mouse character would be. So uh, maybe Scrooge can stay even if like the Grinch cannot. Uh, Although Frosty was trademarked somehow. I'm not sure maybe Grinch too. Although maybe only post Reformation. (laughs) Although it's a good question since both Scrooge and the Grinch are known for their pre-reform demeanor because they're not discussed like, hey, I love that guy Scrooge. He's totally cool and was a poop (laughs) guy for a bit, but now he's totally cool. Instead, everyone is like, Oh man, Scrooge is a butt, and I hope he gets better someday. I mean, he does every time we watch him. So my realization is, is Scrooge living in a big old groundhog day? Where like the Mm. icon of Scrooge, because if Frosty is just alive as a person in the cinematic universe, so too could Scrooge be. But Scrooge is usually acknowledged as being a character in pre-Reformation Scrooge, right? Yeah. No, No kid ever wants to meet post-reform Scrooge as a character, right? He's frozen in this sort of timeless Scroogeitude. But the question is, does Scrooge know this, the character? Because I have now, uh, in my notes, I realize like Scrooge has to go around reforming in front of people every single day of his life. (laughs) Because everyone is like, hey, do you know that asshole Scrooge? He totally doesn't know the meaning of Christmas and evicted my family last year. And I think he sucks. Even though Scrooge has totally realized he was bad all those other times before. And he ran around town giving gifts and turkeys to the people who take them and then go back to being like, oh man, the essence of Scrooge is neglecting Christmas. Right? Like, yeah. And I get that like the wrongers of the victims don't get to set the terms of forgiveness. But in this case, the wronged people clearly have been charmed in the story and forgiven Scrooge. Mm-hmm. So this seems like a sort of toxic dynamic where they don't want to let Scrooge move on with his life and try to get a fresh start, which is unfortunate because he did really try. 
He did. So this means the Scrooge that exists in the Noel cinematic universe, is it pre-reformed Scrooge or post? I would, no, I would say post because the kind of root of Scrooge is that like he wasn't, he wasn't always a bad guy. He Mm. was poorly treated by society. Like he grew up poor. He grew up, I believe, an orphan. And was taking care of his younger sister. And then his younger sister died. Um, and he never got over that that loss. And kind of shunned her son because he reminded her of his sister. And he went through like boarding school and was abused at boarding school. And then when he left and, and went to start working um, in the monies, in the money trades... Yeah, really. Yeah, the monies, F- finance, um, business, the, the Scott Calvin sector. Yes. He became yes, he became Scott Calvin. Yeah, and and he starts hardening over time because the only thing that has been kind to him and made sense to him has been money, and like even at the slight feeling that things might be off with his his partner, he immediately runs away because he's emotionally traumatized and stunted and for all sorts of reasons so like going from that understanding of scrooge that he was fucked over by life Mm. and society and dickensian era england right and then becomes hard and and angry and shut off then he has his reformation and then he's good again i would say that we're in a post scrooge reformation because all of the similar or adjacent kind of social settings that he was in that made him jaded and hard, we see parallels of them in Noel, and everyone mm. in those settings are kind. So they like they wouldn't go down the Scrooge route. Okay. What I'm saying is we have learned a lesson, like in the Noel universe, they have learned a lesson from scrooge Mm, okay that makes sense and in that sense scrooge is and there's the crossover because santa's also in c.s lewis's the lion the witch and the wardrobe Mm -hmm. um edmund the fallen and then reformed child younger younger boy child is sort of the ebenezer scrooge of the lion the witch and the wardrobe and he then establishes like a healthy role for himself in the stories in the future books as well, where even though he's remembered much like Scrooge is for his jerk phase, uh, that is not the sum total of him. And he was always fundamentally good. This, this just got, we pulled in CS Lewis. So this means (laughs) which one of the Kringle dynasty was it who appeared in the line, the witch in the wardrobe to go give the gifts to the Pevensey children that allow them to slay the white witch. If this story happens in the 1940s, is that Noelle's dad or her um, grandfather? Probably her grandfather. If it's in the forties. Mm. Yeah. Unless it was like her dad's first Christmas or something. Oh yeah. 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 As opposed to his last Christmas where he's failing and dying and he's staggering around. <laughs> oh, man. So 
we've we've covered a lot we've covered we've a lot covered here. we've covered so much yes <laughs> just like this film it has so many so many christmas film tropes that i was like playing bingo throughout it like it really is a remake of a year without a santa claus and also the santa claus and also miracle on 34th street like you could frame this film as a remake of any of those yes comfortably uh, like even down to blue christmas playing oh being yeah, a, that's a right. year without a santa claus mm-hmm. and like using the the young like immature reindeer pretending that he's a dog and walking him and like being in a tropical climate like phoenix like there it's it's really bizarre how many similarities there are with these other films and also her reference to frosty being real frosty is a rankin bass production so is she aware of rudolph the Rudolph and the year without a Santa Claus mm. is she thinking as she's going on this journey like wow this is just like that time with my granddad or something yeah well and so we live in a Rudolphless world yeah snow cone the miniature white reindeer that's a baby uh is clearly taking there since they don't I don't think do they gender with snow cone or not um I think she says he oh, okay well, in any case, Snow Cone is taking his or their place at the head of the reindeer without a Rudolph, thus leaving that possibility open as well. Mm. Uh, There's a an implication here, though, that it's like in the Santa book where they're, Noel's trying to teach Nick how to be Santa Claus. There's this whole like book massive yes. thing to read that presumably has been passed down Santa to Santa for mm-hmm. ever. And in the book, it says that you like grab the reins and say on Dasher. So how old are these reindeer? Or is mm. Dasher like, like a kind of goldfish thing where, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yes. do they just keep naming one Dasher or mm. are, have these reindeer been with every single Santa? And yep. if so, why is there a baby reindeer? Where did the baby reindeer come from? Where did the reindeer, baby reindeer come from? Well, so, and we don't, I mean, these reindeer have antlers. And so my admittedly imperfect knowledge of reindeer life is that it is, but yeah, I think only male reindeer have the antlers. They're actually the only ones that met, like males and females do have antlers. So male and female reindeer do have antlers. So that means these are not, mostly gendered names even if it's yeah. uh, assumed so therefore the reindeer on santa sleigh can have active sex lives yes okay but this does get to the issue is is there like a i don't know what the gestation period is of a reindeer does this mean sometimes the sleigh goes where one of the reindeer is or more are pregnant mm. right like yeah. does that affect the operations of the sleigh i would guess not Mm. i mean these ones these ones all have pretty uniform antlers and that i'm really showing my christmas historian knowledge here (laughs) because male reindeer can have antlers up to like i think 50 inches long and female reindeer can have antlers up to like half of that around like 20 or 25 so 
all of the ones on Noel's sleigh have pretty uniform. They look like copy and pasted reindeer. Mm. So I don't think there would be a problem with the ones leading the sleigh having active sex lives with each other. But we don't see any other reindeer around. So mm. there, like, presumably there have to be other reindeer around of a different sex for there to be snow cone. Mm. the baby reindeer right unless snow cone has been a baby reindeer for two thousand years and had like just doesn't age like the other right. reindeer well snow these cone, are the big questions they are well snow cone <laughs> appears to be basically like a pet of noah's yeah. the christmas princess and mm-hmm. so and they were like bonded which also there's clearly the bestial human parallel of both of them are waiting to like be prepared and mature enough to step into their full yuletide roles. Mm. Right. And then that's why even Mrs. Claus sends snow cone to Noel in Phoenix to help Noel rescue her brother. And that again is the same plot as uh, Santa Claus too. When they, they send um, the kind of younger reindeer named chet and i remember its name is chet because it's it tom hanks's son is also named chet yes and they they share that but they they send chet to go like help fix things outside of the north pole and and chet has his own kind of like character arc throughout the film of becoming more professional and figuring things out like snow cone like snow cone that's true (laughs) The other weird callback is they give Noel a relationship with Snow Cone that's a little bit like Enchanted with Amy Adams in there, where she's the princess and her major ability and power appears to be singing and having mm-hmm. all the animals love her. And so Anna Kendrick, who is a good singer, as everybody knows, this is a fact, mm-hmm. she gets to show off her pipes in this film by singing her call to snow cone who then floats flies gallops over to her and so they have this bond through music by which she is able to call snow cone and yeah so presumably there nobody we we don't see anybody else in the family who has the ability to through the power of song summon a reindeer mm-hmm. including yeah. her own father yeah she's very snow white disney princess there she is yeah. Um, and the fact that she is, they call her princess. She is a Disney princess, like literally yeah. so. She's a princess in a Disney movie. Oh man, layers on layers on layers. <laughs> this film's got it all. It's, it's really genuinely, does. genuinely a fun film. Like we're it picking it picking it apart, but it is a very fun film. Like for for easy Christmas watching, um, it's fun. I would recommend it. Yes. Uh, my final wonder is I wondered if there was like this is to circle back this coming of age ritual where the Kringles have to go into the world in order to woo a mate and propagate the family mm. line right yeah. or otherwise the elf people are all around and maybe they yeah. all wait around hoping to be chosen by the Kringles for that highest of callings serving and sexing Santa well that's a that's a great point because like Shirley MacLaine's character, which we have not talked nearly enough about because no. she's delightful in this, but yeah. her character, she says like, 
oh, if all you need to do is see to believe, then like check out my ears, which is also see to believe is also a Santa Claus 2 mm. throwback. But she like shows him her ears, right? So presumably every elf has these ears. And we don't see any other human in the North Pole that right. isn't a Kringle by some extent, including her cousin Gabe. Which... But that that implies that Santa has a sibling yeah. that we just don't know about or haven't and met yet. Presum- so like, like yeah. where Go did ahead. Mrs. Claus come from? It's true. So there is either Mrs. Claus is of elf kind mm-hmm. or Santa flew south somewhere and wooed a mate. Well, it would it would have to be that one because she doesn't have the ears. Oh, right. Like unless you lose the ears and become like like mm. have a physical transformation when you become right. a Kringle. Right. But that would be a weird extra layer. That also harkens back to Santa Claus 2 though. So what I'm yeah. saying is Santa Claus 2 is <laughs> <It's> a pivotal <laughs> film. It's, it's pivotal. <laughs> But no, like, we don't know if there is any sort of taboo on the North mm. Pole about Kringle elf pairings. Yeah. Like, we do know that the elves, so the elves on some level exist to serve Kringledom. And like, that's why, you know, Polly is a nanny slash servant type mm-hmm. who, but is also like a sassy nanny servant type who's not like strictly obedient. So she's not like Dobby. So the, the issue is, is there equality between Kringle and elf kind in this universe? And are they allowed, are they allowed to, to form families? In a sense, it's implied not about whether they can form families, but there is like an elf council, like a high elf council. So like, they're, they're, they are the ones who like bestow the hat on Gabe. So Mm. there, there's definitely some kind of, some kind of equality there. Like a, like while Santa is the king of Christmas, like there's still like an elf house of Lords kind of situation. Mm, Yes. The, the other kind of just side note here is that it's it's quite as we said like an an almost aromantic asexual film like there's mm-hmm. there's no implication of romance in this film uh except for that one scene with the sunscreen where it could be implied that there's something romantic between noel and jake right but jake says that he and his wife his ex-wife split up earlier that year and she's already remarried because he yeah. says this is the first christmas since the split and he says also later that this is the first Christmas he's been happy in a while. And yeah. that's a dark implication. Yeah. So like, yeah, we don't know about their relationship. And he, so there was initially like a a whisper of an inkling of a spark between them that nobody takes. And he eventually is is clearly more interested in making his son happy. And so his gift to his son and his resolution is just not being a weirdo around his ex-wife and the unspecified spouse that she has taken instead of this guy who she was probably cheating on him with. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, who Jake also refers to as Alex's stepfather. Oh, so it but is like, a man. Okay. So we, yeah. she didn't. Okay. Yeah. No, he like he says his his stepdad or stepfather, which is quite fast right yes (laughs) yes 
I, so, I understand why he doesn't want to be at that Christmas. I get right. it. And, and he clearly knows a lot because he is a private detective who's good at his job. Yeah. So it's not like he wouldn't have noticed like all the like sneaking around his wife was doing with this guy <laughs> unless he has only gone into private detecting specifically to account for his ignorance of this horrible yeah. state of affairs like in the last six months. Right. But his son, I think his son's name is Alex. His son, Alex yeah. does seem to indicate his dad has been doing this job for a while because yeah. he says, I really want to work, go to work with you. I never get to see what you do. And he yeah. doesn't say it's new. And I'm, I'm a little sus about this, <laughs> uh, about this new job you've got going on here as a private detective right after mom left you for, fred or whoever his name is like now you're all interested in learning people's secrets i'm a little <laughs> suspicious about this so there isn't that vibe yeah so it's actually kind of mature of this movie to just be like his resolution is not he finds love but rather he because he loves his son just sort of accepts the messy reality that he has to spend christmas with his ex-wife and the man she was clearly cheating on him with <laughs> for all these unhappy years of this marriage. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, he's he's definitely like one of the best characters in this, I would say. Like he has he has a true arc going on. Um, and so does Noel. And obviously I, Snowcone. I thought it was interesting casting because they chose a Brit. And this guy's name, I know he was in at least something else. Uh, Kingsley, Kingsley Benadir. Yes. And so uh, be, and so the reason why I say it's interesting casting is because he's a Brit and his like American accent he goes for is like vaguely hard boiled detective, yeah. gravelly outer borough of New York, but he lives in Phoenix. That's why. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's just like a hint of some sort of clearly like, yeah, like heart, like cynical world weary detective accent he chooses as a Brit, like clearly his real accent is British. So that's why I was just, that was an interesting choice by either him or, you know, the writers or somebody. Mm. He also wears a Phoenix shirt the entire time. Or an Arizona state shirt. Like yeah. it's very, <laughs> it, they're like, you have to constantly be reminding everybody <laughs> that you love Arizona and live yeah. in Arizona all the time. Maybe this is their way of suggesting to tell, let us know. He's never leaving Arizona, everybody. He thinks it's the greatest place ever, mm. inexplicably. And so if you think <laughs> he's going to the North Pole, you're wrong, okay? He loves yeah, it there. It's not okay? going to happen. It, Phoenix is his paradise. <laughs> also, why why, why the Phoenix vacation? Like, that, that was a terrible choice by Nick to get away from things. Like, it, who says, <laughs> I want to relax. Let's go to Phoenix. I like that it's such like a random mm -hmm. choice because that is what's implied by her saying like, oh, just go pick through one of my travel magazines and just pick a place and go. And he picks the first like, well, not even the first hot place because it's between like Hawaii and somewhere else, I think. Puerto in Rico, the book. both better destinations yeah. for a weekend getaway. Yeah. And he just, he just I'm gonna randomly get picks some real Phoenix. Hate. I'm going to get some real Arizona hate in the comments <laughs> on this episode it's just it's an interesting choice but maybe yes. it's because it's such a stark contrast to the north pole and it's not 
as like tropic tropical or like colorful or anything like Hawaii in those depictions in those those travel magazines like it was the most stark contrast between where he was and what he wanted being heat and also a year without a Santa Claus Hmm. do you think that I mean Noel had better hope that the children of Phoenix do not ask for the city's dire water deficiency in its future to be Uh, alleviated as a Christmas gift (laughs) oh no that'll be that'll be the sequel (laughs) Noel has to has to learn like she just starts human rights laws on water (laughs) she just starts distributing literature to all the parents about like lawns are stupid and you should try (laughs) natural desert scaping water shouldn't be on this the stock exchange (laughs) why are we trading water (laughs) all right well the uh the impending problems looming for phoenix is as good a place as any to end this wide-ranging anna kendra christmas special uh i have to say this has been one to remember at least for me yeah i had so much fun yeah this was good um so you do have you have other uh you have op-ed and other podcast doings in your in your near term future that I think any audience members who are still with us should should definitely uh, <laughs> check out. What are those? Yeah, um I have a few op-eds coming out or that have come out this December. So one's in Red Pepper magazine about how the Paramount Accords decision and the repeal of it has affected independent cinema or may another is in sorry this is what is this magazine called red pepper red pepper okay yes um it's a uk-based socialist magazine and i have one coming out on the university of chicago site similarly on effects of antitrust legislation being repealed in hollywood and Mm -hmm. then all the christmas film content as well on impressions of america i also i host joy of star wars and hollywood in focus my two other podcasts so i'm all over the place and centrally you can find all of that on twitter at Gvon joy joy of star wars is a great podcast name since your surname is joy Thank you. so yes um, that was that was the goal yeah, yeah that's pretty great <laughs> that is that is real great uh i'm as you might have guessed i'm a fan of double double meaning double mm, meaning podcast yes. titles so yes. yeah well i am so glad that you are a member now of the elite class of mainly history guests who have <laughs> returned for uh, another go and so hopefully this will not be the last and we can get a, a trilogy of yes of, of vaughn appearances on yeah. this show we do both share a love of Christmas, and so I, I can see that uh, definitely happening. I I would love to be the Christmas guest. There I we go. Can, oh, man. I still cannot believe that I followed Nissenbaum. I cannot believe that you went from Nissenbaum to me. <laughs> it, was a, it was a tonal shift. I won't deny yeah, it. I um, bet it was. Did I tell you? So, Stephen Nissenbaum, this is probably one of the things that I am most proud of that only I care about. He officially passed his Christmas crown to me. He is retiring from Christmas commentary and history Mm. of Christmas etude. Uh, He's interested in classical music, Handel, I believe. 
And so I did, uh, if people listen to that episode, we played a game uh, where I tried to stump the king, where I read pairs of anti-Christmas quotes from one from like a real Puritan, like anti-Christmas sermon, and then one that I made up. And Steve Nissenbaum had to try and identify which was the true and which was the fake. Mm. And for two out of three, I bested the king. And so I engineered anti-Christmas deep fakes that were able (laughs) to fool the master. And so he said he was passing the torch on to me. And I have never been, never in the history of the world has someone been so proud with so little reason. Uh, and that was, that was me. So I'm, yes, I'm very jealous. It was, it was I'm pretty very great. Jealous. Yeah, I was, I had a, I had a good time with that. Enough of decorating my own tree, pointing <laughs> out my own Christmas decorations. We wish everyone the happiest of holiday seasons, wherever and however you celebrate. Happy holidays, everybody. That's our show. And that's 2022, folks. We'll be on a holiday hiatus and back at you better than ever in late January. There are some big plans and great guests in the works, and I'm excited for what 2023 brings. That's next time on Mainly History. 